Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama sambhudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama sambhudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama sambhudasa Samariyami. I undertake the precepts to refrain from harming or destroying living beings. Adinadana Varamini Sikapitam Samariyami. I undertake the precepts to refrain from taking that which is not healing. Kamesu Michachara Viramini Sikapidam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual Musavada Viramini Sikapidam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from one speech Sura Maria Maja Paratana Viramini Sikapidam Samadhyami I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants and alcoholism. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that may belong to I undertake the precept to act with loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and 
With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Thank you very much. That sounded beautiful. So what should we do tonight? I know you want to do guided meditation. <laughs> we will, I promise. Yes. Meditation, question and answers? Um, I, I'm certainly open to that. Meditation or Dharma, either one. What's the difference? Yeah. Okay. I, I just have one, one yeah. question. In, uh, in, in trying to figure out how long the in-breath is mm-hmm. and how long the out-breath is and where they begin and where they end kind of seems to create more questions sometimes. Sometimes it seems obvious, but sometimes when you try to spot where it begins, is that where the first sensation is? And if that's where the first sensation is, well, there are sensations all over. Some of them are down in your throat. Where should you be looking? Should you just keep the focus for the beginning? Down under your nose? The beginning where? And, and length. Is, does length mean duration? Or does length mean inches? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So... You analyze a lot. <laughs> okay, so what what we mean? First of all, uh, there is a, a a fairly circumscribed area where you're looking at the sensations. So you should be just looking at the sensations in in some area around around the nostrils. Right? Could be just inside, or it could be outside, or it could be both. You know. But really shouldn't be, you know, down your throat. Okay. So it's not a question of inches. We're just looking at a sensation in one place and seeing how the, when the sensation in that particular place begins. Uh, and not really, you know, if you analyze, well, when does the breath actually begin? Well, you know, uh, physiologically or anatomically, uh, your breath, most of the time, as, it's as the diaphragm contracts, that starts to draw the air in. So, in that sense, where it begins is down here. So, what we're really interested in is not the beginning of the breath, but in this one area that we've been watching, where the sensations associated with the in-breath begin. And then, how long it lasts is how long between uh, that and those sensations that seem to be the ones that uh, represent the, the, the end of that inhalation, the end of that particular air movement. And, you know, after a while you realize that even in what we're calling the gap or the pause between, 
there are still sensations there. And at first you might not notice them, but after a while they become discernible. Um, and you're just distinguishing between the ones that are there when no air is moving and the ones that are produced by the movement of the air. And so, that's the, that's all that the suggestion consists of, and so it doesn't it doesn't need to be more complicated than that, but it needs to be just complicated enough so that it gives your mind enough of a challenge that it doesn't wander so easily. So, you know, and uh, anything anything more than that. Um, Probably will start to produce a certain amount of agitation because then, you know, you're busy analyzing it. So, thank you. Is there, I suppose, is there a certain way you're supposed to, to breathe, like more with the lungs or more with like the diaphragm down there? Is that anything you suggest? Or? Well, uh, it's it's. The main thing is just to let the body breathe and put your uh, your mind in the state of just simple observation rather than controlling. Um, you know, uh, you'll probably find that most of the breathing, and the breathing's probably going to be about three quarters abdomen and one quarter chest when you're sitting upright in a position like this, and and then of course. As, uh, as your mind becomes quiet and breath becomes very subtle, you can't even really tell because there's so, you know, so little movement associated with it. Well, it's probably mostly your diaphragm that's, you know, very little chest movement. So, but don't, you don't need to, you don't need to be concerned whether you're breathing right or not. You just let your body do the breathing and provide you with a stimulus that you can use the stimulus, the, Sensations produced by the stimulus as something, as a convenient thing to to rest your attention on. So, yes. I noticed sometimes when I'm trying to watch my breath, <clears throat> sometimes I realize my eyeballs are actually following mm-hmm. the sensation of it. And I think, I, I wonder, if it, is that just like a, something I'm adding to the sensation? I mean, is that, a, should I be doing that or should I? Um, it's. I think it's something that you're adding to it, but as long as you're not doing it deliberately, just be aware of it. And, and you know, um, it's interesting about the position of the eyes. The most comfortable position of the, of the eyes is, uh, and, and also where you have this sort of inner sense that you're actually looking at the sensation. So you know, you're, you're observing it in a completely tactile way. But you have it's as though your eyes are, are, are following it is usually focus on uh, some point that's a few inches in front of your face maybe somewhere down here so even though your eyes are closed uh, your eyes rest comfortably very like uh, somewhere around here this is where this is where my eyes tend to rest now if you were to <clears throat> think to yourself that I'm going to imagine I'm looking at the tip of my nose that would be very uncomfortable you know, your eyes would be crossed so, but you know, if you if you uh, if you just imagine that you're looking 
at the sensations, your eyes will rest where if you open them, you'll, you'll be looking at a point here. So, most likely, uh, if, if you're experiencing your, your eyes kind of sort of moving up and down, yeah, this is, uh, this is probably uh, an unconscious sort of correlation as though you're visually following it. And it shouldn't be a problem unless it starts to disturb you or fatigue your eyes or something like that. You just let it happen. It's something, it's something like, I, I know you're supposed to be watching that physical sensation of your breath and not some image or imaginary um, idea of what's going on. And so it seems like this may be counterproductive because when I'm, when I'm watching it, I almost feel as if I'm picturing the part you know, inside of my sinuses that I've never seen <laughs> where my breath is. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe that's not good. Well, um, it, it's probably not a problem. I mean, if it, it, it's, it's not any kind of circumstance where you're your attention is wandering to something else, and so it, it is basically keeping, helping to keep your attention focused on uh, on one thing. So I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, you know, if it if it's just is happening spontaneously, and it's, uh, it's interesting. One thing I will mention is that some people, some people are very visual by nature. I don't know whether you are or not, but some people are. And so what they'll find when they're observing the breath is they'll start to form sort of a visual image of it, you know, and, and it helps them. They're sort of, they're sort of actually watching this visual image. Uh, could be a wave or a circle or, you know, whatever it is. Something that has a, a physical form, or, or at least sort of a, a visual form, that somehow or another corresponds to the movement of the breath. And, and so they, they're sort of watching it, and, and that's perfectly all right, too. Although, what, what if, if you if you're having that experience, if your mind sort of creating an image to help you follow the breath, at some point you'll find that it's actually uh, it's an extra bit of mental activity that is actually detracting from the clarity of your perception of the sensation. And at that point, you know that should be dropped. The same thing is true. Some people find it very helpful and very useful to. Uh, uh, use words like beginning, end, or beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end, or in, out, or whatever, just as little little aids to uh, help them uh, follow the breath and observe the, the beginning and end and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine too. But the same thing will happen. That they that point when the breath begins is so um, precise. And that point when the breath ends is so vague that uh, a big word like beginning gets in the way of seeing seeing that precise point. And a big word like end makes it kind of hard to determine exactly when that vague last sensation takes place. So at that point, that's the time to stop using the labels as well. But there's nothing wrong with using the labels or a visual image for so long as, as you find it helps you to to just steady the mind and reduce the, the amount of extraneous activity that's taking place. So feel free to do that, but just watch for that point where it's no longer of value to you.
Can I ask a question? Um, I continue to examine my feeling and uh, try to uh, uh, understand the mind, you know, what's the interest they open I observe the tree. And I I see that when the tree is no leaves, I feel perfectly fine. But when when the tree has some leaves still hanging there, you know, and I stick on that. And and I exam exam very carefully and that now I would like you to guide me that. And I feel like so something that I'm not quite sure. It's uh, something patient you, you talk about in the past. You know, I didn't pay much of it, but, but I don't know. When I meditate on that, I feel like it's something the patient or some some that uh, present moment, you know, come to the point beside the sensation. I think it's something the the in the processing the the, the present the moment or, or something that you know. I I think uh, would you ex can you talk a little bit more about that? Or is a patient? I think I, I just try to. What what is it? patience? Is that what you're asking? Um, maybe I ask the other time. Well, no, I, I don't. I, I don't mind talking about it now, but I just I don't quite understand what you know. You yeah, said I, I still try to figure out. I, I don't understand either. Okay, <laughs> my, my I, I give you an exam, and just like a, um, you uh, taught us in the last session, is keeping exam exam. You know, and I understand that uh, impermanent, and understand the whole thing. But I still have feel something there. I kind of uh, uh, something caught me in that, and I try to break through that. And and uh, one thing is, I see when the things in the progress, and I know, you know, not logically, I know the leaves need to fall. Mm-hmm. And then have a, a new new leaves come. They are not dying. You know, they they just the processing. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I figure out that the, the anxious inside of me, the feeling, even though not not that strong, but I I, I don't want to neglect that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So so I'm keeping exam. You know, what's that? Because the mind, um, sometimes showing the perfect tranquility. But in the same, in the short period of time, you see the cravings, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 wish to change or, or want to doing to do mm-hmm. something to, to, to push to, to make the things change to to uh, expedite uh, expand the process or, or something. Mm-hmm. I, I see have that kind of tendency. So I don't know if that is related to the patient or that is related to I cannot really. Comfortable state in the uh, uh, present moment, you know, and, and I just want that a little bit different mm-hmm. because I see that anxiety there mm-hmm. a little bit there. So I just would like to to see if I can hear something mm-hmm. regarding to that. It's good that you're aware of it, and would you? I I I think that. Uh, you would probably agree that what you're feeling is this tendency your mind has to always be moving into the future, always, instead of just being, mm-hmm. becoming. And the idea of pushing into the future, into the next moment, into the next event, 
Mm, I, I see that anxiety is there, mm -hmm. and that, uh, and, you know, maybe that will even develop uh, uh, more with the, the, the daily life. But this is just watching the nature, mm -hmm. watching the thing, and I already sense that, you know, and I think this is the one thing is very important mm -hmm. for, for, for me that, so I would like to use it. Is this, this one to push into the future, and that, that is because impatient? Or because that I cannot stay in this current moment, or, 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 or what's what's it's it's, it's uh, yeah I wouldn't it, it, to to describe it as impatience I think impatience is too coarse a uh, a description for what this this is this is very subtle but this is always present this is what our minds are always doing we're always pushing into the future uh, and so this this is very good to see this and just you know, just be aware of it. Just, just be aware of it. Uh, be aware of its subtlety and that uh, your mind is doing this. And, and then also be aware when it stops. There's a very important difference between when your mind just becomes tranquil and uh, you're in a state of being and you're in the moment and you're not grasping after anything. And, and when there's even this very, very subtle feeling that comes up. You become aware that in much, in many tremendously stronger forms, this is, this is what's driving everybody all the time, this constantly abandoning the present. Yeah, I feel like I since didn't stay in the present yeah. moment. I seem to bend it and want to mm -hmm. jump to the future. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is very, very good that you're aware of this. So just be aware of it. That don't don't worry about it. Just look at it and understand and recognize this as as being something that is uh, it's it's always taking place in, in the, the the movement of the mind, always moving into into the future. And you know, in this case, you're enjoying the beauty of the tree, and it's just that very very faint and subtle sense of a sort of anxiety and wanting things to be different. But look at how. Be aware at the same time how, in a stronger form, it robs you of most of your life because most of your most of your life is spent pushing really forcefully into the future, not not even being aware of the present. You know, uh, being totally caught caught up in the momentum of of the plans and the future and change, and you want this to be that way, and you want this to be different and, and you're busy doing and in a state of action. So yeah, the, you mentioned the doing. I mean that's a part of it, that that doing, that you know, need to need to do. And we are so used to it that when we stop when we stop doing, we feel uncomfortable like we should be doing again. You know, like I said yesterday, when you've been when you've been a slave long enough as soon as you slow down, you start to feel like you're going to hear the crack of the, the whip, mm -hmm. even though there's no whip. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's that feeling. It's like you stop and there's something wrong. You know, there's something wrong with you. You're just not used to it. Mm -hmm. So just be aware of it and notice it. And, and realize that it's just, it, it, it's a very subtle form of what's taking place in a much stronger form all the time. And also, I uh, like your instruction. I observe the mind, and I real I, I notice. 
And as you say, realize, I notice that even though part of mine seems uh, already experienced and understand, you know, the way the suchness is or the mm-hmm. thing, but sounds like a, it won't because you experience it and understand that can apply the whole thing. The other it seems like a total, almost contradictory for, for for this. You know, you can sense you experience this in one hand, and the other hand is totally wow. You know, so it won't because you realize something and can apply the whole. I need to attach and, and watch each one and and and, and break a link each each moment. Uh. Yeah, you, you have to, you don't just see something once and, and know it, and that's it, and over with, you have to keep <laughs> you hit that. What you have to do is, uh, it has to become uh, a new way of seeing things, that, that uh, becomes a part of the way that your, your, your mind works, your whole understanding, a part of your view of, of the world, so. Um, and the... Uh, the more direct and clear your experience of these things, uh, uh, then the stronger the realization is and the easier it is to incorporate that into the other aspects of, uh, into, uh, into the rest of your life, you know, to carry that awareness over. Okay. So this come? All right. Thank you. But, uh, there are, you know, there, there, are, there are certain things that happen in meditation that have a very profound effect, and, and certain realizations that uh, they're so strong that they have a profound effect, even though they still take some time to counteract the other habitual ways of thinking and feeling and, and reacting. But uh, your mind has a lot of habits in it. Uh, a lot of conditioning. Uh, we could say a lot of karma, and that pre-existing karma is going to uh, stand in the way of you being able to fully implement uh, n- new understanding and new realization. You'll still re- revert to habitual ways of thinking and seeing things, especially under certain conditions. You know, under the conditions where you acquire a deeper understanding uh, of things, it's very easy to retain that, but you put yourself in a, in a different situation, like, uh, like when any of you go back to work, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a very familiar situation with a whole set of stresses and demands and emotional triggers and things like this. And so it's going to just flip you, it's going to tend to flip you back to seeing things exactly the way you saw them before you meditated and before you gained your insights. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah? Um, I've got a few questions, mm-hmm. I, I, but feel free to not answer the long ones and we'll do it later. Uh, one, one question. Um, you recommended before an hour of meditation a day. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any benefit to splitting that up to 45 minutes in the morning, 15 at night, or any division, or is it better to get it for, uh, an hour straight? Uh, I wouldn't go to less than 45 
But to split it up so that you could maybe do 45 in the morning and 45 at night would be uh, an advantage over uh, doing just one hour. But a 15 minutes, rather than rather than doing a 15 minute sit, uh, it would be to capture more time than that just whenever you have the opportunity during the day. You know, whenever you find yourself in a circumstance where you have uh, two or three minutes or five minutes free uh, for one reason or another. You're waiting for something, you know. And uh, I believe you probably spend a lot of time in an office, right? You know, and there's if you're waiting, waiting for a phone call or waiting for somebody to arrive for an appointment or something like that, you can sometimes... I know the normal tendency is we try to pack every bit of work we can in, and so if there's a spare minute, you know... But examine and see. You might find that you can do five minutes of meditation two or three times during the day, and that would be worth more than, than uh, a separate 15-minute sit at night. So at uh, 15 minutes... It's, I, I think you'd probably be better off sitting a whole hour rather than take 15 minutes away. But if you can add a little bit to that and make it 45 minutes and half an hour or 45 minutes and 45 minutes, that would be good. Gotcha. Next question. The, the, uh, the two others, and uh, feel free to decline. Um, I, I would like to hear about uh, dependent co-arising and... <coughs> Does it does that happen? Um, can you explain how it happens on on a smaller level, sort of a day to day, moment to moment level, as opposed to okay, when you're finally enlightened, mm-hmm. then you you let go of all craving. Um, and then the third question is, um, I'd just like to hear your answer to what what would you recommend that somebody do at the moment of their death. Okay. First, dependent co-arising, dependent origination, dependent co-origination. These are the different terms that you might know this process by. And uh, most of you who do know it and are familiar with it are probably familiar with it in a form that involves 12 links. But there are different versions that show up in different sutras. Uh, But the twelve links, uh, the way they say is that first, due to ignorance, there is karmic action. And, uh, or action, you could say action with karmic consequences and so forth. And and because of this karma, there is uh, consciousness. And because of consciousness, there is uh, nama-rupa, name and form, body and mind. Three different ways of saying the same thing. And because there is uh, nama-rupa, there is the six sense bases. And because there are the six sense bases, there will be contact between uh, a sense object and a sense organ, and the consciousness uh, associated with that will arise. And then when there is contact, 
feeling will arise, meaning pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Where there is feeling, craving will arise. Where there is craving, grasping will arise. Where there is grasping, becoming will arise. Where there is becoming, there is birth. Where there is birth, there is old age and death. Um, Now, these should properly be divided into two, eight, and two. The first two referring to the past. The middle eight referring to the present. And the last two referring to the future. And then there are... then this sequence can be applied on many different timescales. We could say that because of past lives, ignorance in past lives led to karmic actions in past lives. That's the first two. So that in this present life, there is consciousness, and there being consciousness, there is uh, nama rupa, body and mind, which is when the Buddha used the term nama rupa, he defined that. He said, he, "There's, there's. First of all, he said, as an individual, that's what what a, a person is. That's what an individual is. Nama rupa. Nama rupa is the individual. An individual is nama rupa. And by nama, he said, by nama rupa, he means rupa form." And nama is four things. It is uh, uh, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So when he says nama rupa, mind and body, uh, rupa is the body part, and the mental component is feeling, consciousness, perceptions, and mental formation. Okay, so in due to ignorance in, a past, in past lives and karmic action in past lives extending back for an infinite number or an uncountable number of lifetimes. You exist. You are conscious. You are an individual uh, consisting of body and mind, nama rupa. Where there is consciousness and nama rupa, there are sense organs, the six sense bases. And where there are six sense bases, there will be contact, with sense objects, and those sense objects will produce pleasure and pain. And as a result of that pleasure and pain, you will experience craving. As a result of that craving, you will grasp to this particular kind of reality, and you will uh, become, you will move into the future as uh, what happens What happens in grasping. Grasping is such a... a um, it's a simple word implying a lot. This is where the objects that you see as providing the pleasure and pain are, are the objects that uh, become real for you. And the self that you perceive as experiencing the pleasure and pain, this becomes real for you. And then the desire to either uh, obtain the pleasure or to avoid the pain results in action. And so when we say becoming, then you become a grasping self, grasping at an object and performing a karmic action. That's what becoming is. 
So the present is the, is then its consciousness, namarupa, the sense bases, contact, feeling, craving, grasping, and becoming. That's the eight parts that describe the present. Uh, and in terms of a lifetime, as a result of a lifetime of this, there will, in the future, be birth. And where there is birth, there will be old age and death. And so this is seen as, as a cycle. Uh, you, know, you can see it as, as a cycle in this way. It's describing the, pro- the process of lifetimes. So when we say, in the past there was ignorance, and out of ignorance there was karmic action, then that's saying the same thing as the eight detailed steps describing the present. In those eight detailed steps, because of ignorance, these whole eight steps lead to the process of karmic action becoming. And the when we talk about say in the future there will be birth, and as a result of that will be old age and death, means that there will be there will be a future result of that karmic action, and that future result will uh, play itself out and produce all of all of the consequences that are associated. With that, with that karmic result. Birth is a karmic result, and old age and death are part of that karmic result. So you see, this is what the whole description is about. Death, did you? No. I thought you were asking a question. Yeah? Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, okay, but do if, there, if there's a question. Oh, I didn't have a question now. Okay, if you have a question now, <laughs> and I'll continue after answering oh, your question. Okay. Um, um, if you remove the link of ignorance, then you stop this whole chain of events, right? And so when, now when you're looking at it in a uh, microcosmic way, like in the, in the present moment, so you just have ignorance and you have these eight, eight parts following it, um, what happens then? You, rem- you remove ignorance as just a state of enlightenment and therefore um, you, you, won't, you won't die and it's sort of like you, you said, uh, there is no self to die, and the Buddha wouldn't answer that question. Well, um, let's look at this more closely and find out. I mean, we have eight steps condensed into two, one of which is ignorance. So we have to see how ignorance fits into the eight steps. But what happens when you do that? When ignorance is removed and there is no more karmic action, then uh, there is a, a... there is not a future karmic result of birth, old age, and death resulting. So what stops, what stops is the cycle of samsara, the, the continued turning of the wheel of, of birth and, and death over and over again. That's what stops for a Buddha. To understand what that means in terms of a Buddha is a somewhat deeper question because you know the the naive and mistaken interpretation might be that uh, so the Buddha the the Buddha dies this must mean the annihilation of the Buddha because there's no future rebirth and the the uh, that is not that's not correct but it's hard to understand why that's not correct you know, because its opposite seems to be well, if the 
if the Buddha uh, uh, dies, then how, how, in what way does the Buddha continue to exist if the body of the Buddha dies? And we can talk about that. That's a different that uh, that's a different question that we really can't understand until we have more of an understanding of dependent origination and uh, what is meant by it. So let's go back to looking at that and see how the process, how it applies and how it can be interrupted. Well, first of all, just to go back, you, you can take these three and say, the first describes past lives, the second set of eight describes the present life, and the last two describe the future life that comes out of it. But we can also see that this is what's happening moment by moment, literally that this is happening over and over again. It also, using it as a way of understanding, as a paradigm, we can apply it to larger situations. We can apply it to... uh, we can dissect out of our lives over and over again where on a larger scale this same thing manifests. So it's worth, I think, our looking at that and doing that. So now as, as a karmic result you are a conscious being with a body and a mind and six senses. Okay. And that being the case, you are going to have experiences where uh, your senses are impacted on. Remember this six senses, so you can be impacted by mental objects and ideas and concepts and things like that, not just touching, hearing, tasting, and so forth, but any of these things. So, being this kind of a being, and remember that, that one of the components of Nama was mental formations. And mental formations is your store of ideas and mental predispositions, uh, all of these different mental predispositions. So, as an individual, you might have an experience of an object that produces strong desire in you, lust, greed. You fill in the details, but you, as a part of your mental formations, have some predisposition, a karmic predisposition, that when you encounter some certain situation, there, there you have the capacity for, for uh, greed, desire, lust for that particular object to occur. And this is what happens. Um, this object is perceived as a source of pleasure for you. And because of that, there arises the craving, the desire. Now that craving that arises, that was, you were already predisposed to that, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have manifested if the object hadn't come in and hadn't encountered your sense organs and then produced the feeling and then the craving. But once the craving is there, then what your mind does is it it makes the the perceived object become uh, very real. 
You know how it is if you have greed or lust for something or someone? How very real it becomes. How fully it occupies your attention. How it is seen as perfect, wonderful, extremely satisfying. And this is the nature of having having this kind of emotional reaction is you see it as, as, as highly desirable, more desirable than it really is. You attributed to it much greater capacity to give you pleasure than it really will. I mean, we know this over and over again. We're always, we're always chasing after things to discover in the end it wasn't worth it. <laughs> but this is what happens. So what do we do? Well, we make this, we, we create ourselves. In the process, as a result of grasping, you become a, 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 a person filled with desire, obsessed with an object, and you've made that object into a reality. So you have created these two realities, a self and an object, linked together by this powerful craving. And as a result of that, you launch yourself into the future through action. This is what I'm going to do. And could be anything that you do, but uh, you think about the kinds of things that we do in a powerful state of greed. Uh, you, you, could, you could steal, you could lie, you could foolishly waste your resources, you could uh, spend your money, you could... You know, there's all kinds of things that you could do. But you're going to commit actions, actions of uh, thought and word and deed, right? The mental actions are really important. Just, just holding on to that greed and processing it in your mind and thinking over and over again about how much you want this object. This is an action. This is a karmic action. What it's doing is conditioning your mind so that in future similar situations you're going to be even more vulnerable to the same greed arising or to a similar greed arising. You see? But most of the time in this situation, we're going to say and do things as well. And then what that means is in the future, we are going to experience all of the consequences of our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. So it may be later today, or maybe tomorrow, or maybe next week, or maybe next year. But once again, what will happen is that we, as an individual will have a sense experience and that's going to be a karmic result of this event that I just described. You know, it could it could take many forms. It could be that because of this greed uh, uh, you spend a lot of money that you shouldn't and so you're going to experience the karmic result of that when you need that money, right? <laughs> or you could have committed some other kind of wholesome action, unwholesome action, which will come back to you in many possible ways. But there are consequences on the physical level, those that are easily ascertained and understood, and those that are more difficult to understand and ascertain. But most especially, the future person that exists and has this future experience has been conditioned by your thoughts and actions in the present moment. It's a part of the mental formations, part of the nama rupa of the you of next week or next year that has this experience, or next lifetime. 
But the point here is that you can see how this is, this is the story of your life, over and over in your life, conditioned by your past experiences. An experience, a new experience occurs. You react to the new experience. From ignorance, you react to the new experience out of your uh, desire or aversion, out of craving. And you perform acts. And you will, at some time in the future, reap all of the results of those acts that you commit now. And probably in the future, if you are still ignorant, the same thing will happen. In the future, when you reap the results of the present action, you will react in a way that once again generates more karma. So, we can summarize the whole eight steps to save it out of ignorance, uh, which ignorance is overlaying the whole process here. Out of ignorance, you let this unfold, and as a result, you commit actions. And so, there is the becoming, which results in the future birth, aging, and death, or the future manifestation of the fruits of the karmic action. So, when we overcome ignorance, as we begin to overcome ignorance, we have the possibility to uh, overcome the power of the craving, and to uh, overcome the grasping, and the, uh, and the becoming that is the consequence of all of this. Now for a bodhisattva, for someone who is practicing on the path and has not yet achieved enlightenment, they will be overcoming ignorance. If they examine what's taking place with mindfulness, they will see, they will mindfully recognize the arising of greed, and they will uh, mindfully be aware of the uh, of the arising of greed, of the uh, of the thoughts and actions out of greed, and of the consequences of the greed, and this creates a different kind of karma. So that in the future, there may still be a huge amount of ignorance, but there's now some wisdom there too. Mindful, mindful awareness, whenever, whenever dependent origination unfolds. When mindful awareness shines on it, it produces some wisdom, which will be a part of the future karmic result. The effect of the wisdom, weakening the ignorance, is that it also weakens the vulnerability to the craving. It's more, it's more likely that uh, you will even more readily recognize uh, the desire or aversion, the unwholesome roots that are present. And you may uh, you may greatly alter the actions of thought, word, and deed that arise out of it. You may experience greed arising, but you may recognize it as an unwholesome thing and attempt to, uh, to arouse a state of, of diminished greed and desire. You may refrain from the more unwholesome and foolish of your actions and thereby reduce the, the consequences. In the process of doing all of this, you have created yet a stronger karma for the future, so that next time something similar happens, there will be more wisdom, less ignorance. There will be more restraint and less succumbing to, to craving. 
and the uh, the four the strength of the grasping and the, the actions that come out of it will be attenuated. So a bodhisattva who still has ignorance can diminish their ignorance and they can also uh, alter the, imp- the, the strength of the imprint of the desire and aversion that affects their actions. And so you can you can change, you can improve your life, you can become uh, a different kind of person as a result of this process. With the attainment of the four paths and the four stages of enlightenment, there's a progressive reduction. In, uh, there's, there's a huge reduction in ignorance. The root ignorance is the belief in the personal self. And that is overcome on attaining the first path. There's still craving, but the support of craving by, uh, by attachment to personal self is gone. And so craving becomes more manageable. And, and so uh, as a bodhisattva who has achieved the first path, you're now enormously more effective at coping with the situation. You still have craving, though, so the whole thing's still going to unfold and you're still going to make karma for the future. As, as you further diminish both your, uh, uh, your craving and ignorance in other forms, uh, the, if we, there's, there's different ways of looking at, that, at this, but just for the moment, let's, let's focus on the ignorance to do with the... the uh, attachment to the sense of self and self-cherishing. You see, there is, uh, although the belief in and attachment to the personal self is overcome with the first path, you're still left with a sense of self, a sense of self that is particularly noticeable at, uh, when there is a strongly pleasurable or a strongly unpleasant experience. And this persists in a greatly weakened state with the second path attainment. With the third path attainment, this is overcome. You are no longer filled with this sense of of self that can serve as a basis for craving for sense pleasure or avoidance of sensory pain when you become, when you attain to the third path, you become a non-returner. You're free of craving as regards sensory things, but you still have some vestigial craving for existence, for uh, perpetuation of your separate existence in certain forms. When that is finally overcome, then ignorance is completely dispelled. An arhat has completely overcome ignorance. As a result, an arhat has completely overcome all forms of craving, not just sensual craving, but craving for becoming. And so, at that point, the steps of dependent origination stop. There is no craving. So there arises feeling of pleasant and unpleasant. But there is no craving. Because there is no craving, there is no grasping. Because there is no grasping, there is no becoming. And because there is no becoming, there is no future karmic consequence that arises out of the present action. So how do how do Buddhas act? Buddhas act out of rather than out of desire, they act out of generosity. 
and out of aversion they act out of loving kindness. And all of their actions are rooted not in ignorance but in wisdom. And so their actions have the same quality as a person who is acting out of the wholesome motivations of uh, of generosity and loving kindness. But there is this difference because in, a, in an ordinary person who acts out of generosity, the processes of, uh, of grasping and becoming still take place. And so karma is made, but it's a good karma. There'll be a good karma in the future. But in a Buddha, this doesn't happen. So the, there's no, there is no future effect that comes back on the Buddha mind of the action. The only effect of the action is in the world and on the other persons that, uh, that the Buddha uh, is acting upon. But the, the stream of consciousness that would otherwise be doomed to be reborn again in a material form and take on the fruits of various past actions, past karmas, this is what is not reborn in the Buddha. Um, and the, now, it is said in the Mahayana, and uh, you know, unless there's some Buddhas in the room that kind of test to what you know, which way it goes. According to the Mahayana, and it sounds good to me, a Buddha can choose to continue to manifest in the world in physical forms, in order to continue to help other beings uh, achieve enlightenment. That uh, the fact that uh, that a Buddha is no longer subject to rebirth doesn't mean that a Buddha can't choose to continue to appear in a corporeal form. The uh, Theravada uh, doesn't address that question very specifically and very clearly, but perhaps a little more um, mystically, that as the, as the purified mind of a Buddha becomes a part of the one mind, it's like if you, if you take um, from a lake that is polluted and you take some of the water out and you purify it and you put it back in, the whole lake is that much more pure because of it. And uh, that doesn't rule out the possibility that a Buddha could act in, in other ways. But as far as what happens to Buddhas when they die, uh, they don't cease to exist. Uh, they don't still exist. They don't neither exist nor not exist, and they don't both exist and not exist. The reason being that the person that we're identifying as a Buddha and the, the selfhood that as a bodhisattva that that Buddha experienced was always an illusion. Is an illusion, was always an illusion. The removal of the illusion uh, means that, that uh, it's not appropriate to 
to uh, to discuss what happens in illusion. What, it, what it's like saying what happens to the movie after we tear the screen down. There's no screen, you don't see the movie. Maybe a little little bit more uh, technically complex than that, but other questions? Chris was asking about what to think or were you asking about the end of your Yeah, I have another one now that too. But uh, no, um, pick, pick one, I guess. What, what do you recommend at the end of your life, even when you're about to die? And the second one was karma. Does it have any moral um, undertones, or is it more of like a pragmatic? I've understood it as like a pragmatic um, issue. When you're angry, okay. there are things that naturally follow from that, regardless of whether it's written down somewhere. But let's let's do the the. Karma morality one next. First of all, though, let me go back to everybody else. And does anybody else have any questions about dependent origination, specifically dependent origination, dependent? Um, not a dependent origination, but related. Because just you talk about uh, that, I just would like to see if you can uh, uh, clarify a little bit more regarding to the. You say the uh, uh, first will for the uh, personal uh, identity, mm-hmm. you know, and but you said about the third uh, path that will have a still have existing, self-existing. The craving for the experience of, of uh, separate existence. Uh, yes. As being a separate self. Yeah, for this two, from, from the first set to the uh, self-identity and, mm-hmm. and weaken that to that, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of way for, for this, what's distinguished for that with the uh, uh, self-existing. Of uh, the, 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 pers- the sense of a personal self that uh, is over Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. The, um, this, the experience that we have of self. It's, uh, until we examine it, it is quite vague. But then when we examine it, uh, the first thing that emerges that we identify as self is um, what in Western psychology is called the egoic self, the ego. The sense of identity that is a collection of a large number of different mental constructs. There's the ideas of who we are, of our identity. It is this egoic self that um, we can lack esteem for and suffer from low self-esteem. It's this egoic self that uh, can be responsible for uh, excessive uh, uh, pride. It's this egoic self that experiences injury if uh, we feel that we're slighted in some way. It's this egoic self that can become inflated through our successes. It's this egoic self, which is just a whole collection of ideas that is the source of a very large amount of our uh, uh, mental pleasure and pain. Because we take, we take great 
pleasure in satisfying, uh, building, uh, expanding the base of the egoic self. And uh, likewise, we suffer great pain when the egoic self is 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 uh, damaged, is damaged, or, or besmirched in some way. So it's an important part of our vulnerability. More than that, even it's an important part of our uh, actions and reactions involving both greed and aversion. Uh, the desire that we feel for certain kinds of objects is not so much the physical pleasure that we'll get out of having them or using them, but rather the perceived effect that owning them will have on the egoic self. Right? So, and the same thing, uh, if we look at where a lot of our animosities and hatreds arise from, uh, the triggers for those animosities and hatreds and irritabilities are in the egoic self. This egoic self seems very, very real to us. We can analyze it intellectually and we can see that it lacks substantiality in several different ways. We can see that, uh, for, the, for one thing, is that it's not constant. It changes constantly in different situations. It evolves constantly as our life progresses and changes take place. Um, it doesn't have clear boundaries except in a particular situation. A, little, a clear boundary will emerge. This is, this is the egoic self, what's inside this psychological boundary uh, and, and, and what outside is not. But that boundary uh, most of the time is very hazy and it's just when a particular situation arises that it coalesces and it solidifies and it leads to action. We can analyze that. You can see that. You can review for yourself the the uh, the way that your egoic self behaves at different times, and you can see that it is a mental construct, actually made of many other mental constructs. It's a mental construct that is constantly in a state of flux and doesn't have a substantial definition. The other thing is when you look at it that you find out that it. Uh, of course, it's made up of many things, and the things that it's made up of are ideas, concepts, you know, all of these things. And so, when we say that it, through intellectual analysis we can understand that this ego itself doesn't have a substantial reality, we can see that it is only a construct of the mind. It has been created by the mind, completely by the mind, right? That's where we can see that. But, does seeing that liberate you from the egoic self? It does not. It might give you a little bit of tiny, a tiny amount of, uh, as, as long as you can remember it and keep it in mind, it might give you a little tiny bit of restraint in terms of the normal reactions to the behavior of the egoic self. But, you know, uh, you, intellectual understanding doesn't liberate you. Achievement of the first path does. The way that the achievement of the first path does is by revealing 
simultaneously the absolute falsehood of the of, of the sense that this egoic self is substantially real. And it also gives you a direct experience of a much more profound reality to which that part of your mind that previously attached so strongly to the ego itself can transfer. Okay. But the self, when we examine the self, we find there is more than just this mental construct. There's more than the egoic self. There is also this sense of selfhood, which is not an elaborate mental construct. It's a feeling. It's a very, very powerful feeling. The feeling of selfhood. And it is very strong uh, whenever there is pleasure and pain. There is, you know, I am experiencing the pleasure, which means that the next logical step, I can desire more of the pleasure. I can desire to hold on to the pleasure. But when we look at that, it feels real. It feels... It, it feels like it has a genuine, substantial reality of its own. And if we only go by feelings, as most people do, we won't question that. For example, you get angry and you say, I am angry. And you don't, you don't question that. You don't recognize it, that the anger is just a feeling, a sensation created by the mind. The mind created it. It could have not created it. It could have created a different feeling. The mind created that particular feeling in that situation just as it creates that similar feeling in other kinds of situations. Anger is a feeling created by the mind. The normal sort of experience that the average worldling has without question is, I am anger. I am angry. I am anger. Anger is real. Anybody be angry. Of course I'm angry. I have a right to be angry. Who couldn't be angry? You know, it's it's total unquestioning. It's no oh, sense of that this is just a feeling. But if through your practice of mindfulness you come to recognize that all of these different feelings, these mentally, these feelings that arrive at, arise out of mental states of desire and aversion, are just that. They too are products of the mind. They're a different kind of product. They're not a concept and an idea. They're a feeling. But they're still, they're a product of the mind, manufactured by the mind, created by the mind, exists like a mirage floating in the air, and what happens to them, sooner or later, they break up and disappear like a cloud. That's the nature of feelings. And when you come to understand that, when you come to understand the nature of all these other feelings, and then you turn your attention to this sense of self, you don't stop having the sense of self, but you recognize it, that this is just like all of those other feelings. This is a feeling created by my mind. And it doesn't go away. It only goes away through practice and through path attainment. Then it will go away. Yeah, as it, you talk about is the self, uh, the identity therefore. But I have a question is that for the one existing self, mm-hmm. for that one, what's different from, from this? I, when there is profound equanimity, uh, 
towards sense pleasure and sense pain because uh, there is the sort of because sense pleasure and sense pain are just experienced as sensations and do not generate powerful uh, uh, do not trigger craving and emotions of, of desire and aversion then there is not that sense of self but there is uh, once again quite apart from the egoic structure of self and closely related to that sense of self that arises in association with pleasure and pain is still the sense of being a separate uh, being separate that I exist separately from the rest of the universe the universe consists of two parts me and everything else and even when even when I'm not driven by craving, by desire and aversion, I still experience me as being separate from everything else. And I like that. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to be annihilated. The idea of annihilation bothers me simply because I think it's wonderful being this separate, distinct self. It's the only thing I know. I'm attached to it. And I can see that life in the sense realm is, you know, I could do without that, but Devar realms, you know, the, the fine material and the immaterial realms, now, that's the kind of continued existence that I can really sign up for. And I'd much rather have that than annihilation. Right? Can you understand that? Yeah. See that? And that's what we're talking about. So there is still that. And as long as I feel that, I will still have a certain degree of separation from the ultimate oneness. And it too is an attachment and an illusion. But it's a very, very subtle one. It's a very, very refined one. Okay? Okay. So, um, your question was karma and morality. Is karma only pragmatic? Or does it have a moral dimension? Was that, was that the question? Yeah, I, do, I don't want to keep you too late. <clears throat> yeah, I, I probably shouldn't keep the rest of you too late. <laughs> if you're up where I'm up. Um, karma has, is both pragmatic and it has a, a moral dimension to it. And both are very much important. But the, an awareness of the moral dimension alone 
is probably not going to be nearly as powerful a motivator as an awareness of the pragmatic consequences. That so long as so long as you don't understand uh, the nature of your actions and the karmic consequences that they produce, you're going to con- continue to suffer the results of those. And then once you begin to understand and you have uh, a desire for awakening and liberation, then you'll recognize that the only way that you can actually do anything to move from where you are to where you would like to be is to make a positive shift in your karma. Stop making the bad karma because uh, because you can see how your karma overwhelms you in the present moment. You, you cannot change the past conditions that cause you to be what you are in this moment. But your reaction to this moment will determine it does create the karma for the future and it is the opportunity to make the change. And so um, the other thing is that until you achieve a certain level of wisdom, the basis for your morality is that you're following a, a set of rules that is, is defined. And as a set of rules, they have, they have a certain strength, but they, uh, they're easily, easily undermined by the defilements. So, uh, for most bodhisattvas, it is the pragmatic dimension of karma that is going to be most powerfully motivating. But the moral aspect of it should never be neglected. So that's a, that's a short answer to that. I'll go back to the original thing about dependent origination. It just reminded me of something, a wet scale. The example I described to you was sort of a, a... It wasn't in terms of past life, this life, next life. It was one event out of many that make up this life. But there is a, also that finer level. Dependent origination is functioning every instant. Because, and of course in your meditation, if this hasn't already become clear, it will become clear, that there is a very rapid series of experiences. There's a sensation, another sensation, a, a thought form, a concept, uh, and an intention, another sensation. There's this continuous stream of sensations, uh, thoughts, perceptions, intentions arising boom, 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 so quickly, over and over. Every one of those involves these steps of dependent origination. Even on that very fine scale, you're making karma every instant. And the karma that you're making is, you know, it's a flip of the coin, whether it's good or bad, if, if there's ignorance. It's only to the degree that there is wisdom present moment by moment that you have the influence over the karma that you make moment by moment. So that's why the Buddha said, guard the senses and practice mindfulness at all times. Because in that way, in that way, there is always some wisdom and by the practice of mindfulness, the amount of wisdom accumulates. Wisdom is also a result.
Wisdom is a result of mindful awareness. And the more wisdom there is, the less ignorance there is. That's what's so wonderful about being born as a human being. Of all the different kinds of beings, we have the capacity to generate mindful awareness and we have a mind that can reap the fruits of the application of mindful awareness and acquire wisdom. Animals are limited in that capacity. And, of course, uh, beings in the hell realms and hungry ghosts and Asurans, they are so caught up in their own karmic results that they have, they have no mental space to acquire wisdom or even you know, get a handle on what's going on. When you're uh, a, a human being in the midst of, uh, of, of tremendous chaos and suffering and things like that, doesn't have very much opportunity to practice wisdom. So those of us that, that are human beings are in the ideal state to do that. Beings in the Deva realm, they're enjoying all the fruits of their good karma. They're spending their bank accounts like mad, you know. And when they, when they run out, of, when the bank account of good karma runs out of money, they'll get reborn somewhere else. But in the meantime, it doesn't occur to them <laughs> that they've got a problem. We're the ones, we have enough suffering to know that we've got a problem. Right? Not as much as, as in the lower realms, uh, but enough. And at the same time, we have enough comfort and leisure uh, that uh, we, can, uh, we can actually do something about it. And then unlike uh, animal realms and things like that, we have, we have the mental capacity to exercise mindful awareness and uh, develop wisdom. So it's absolutely wonderful to be born a human being. Not all human beings are in such good circumstances as we are, though. So here we are, in the kind of circumstances that could hardly be better, hardly be more conducive to study the Dharma, practice meditation, practice the Dharma, and uh, develop the wisdom, achieve our liberation. So do not waste this opportunity. So, can I answer your question? I have a couple more, but I'll leave you. <laughs> we're going to need something to talk about tomorrow. So what I suggest is uh, we take five minutes to stretch, and then we'll have half an hour to sit together before bed. <laughs>